This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkran. More importantly, today I have the delight of welcoming three guests uh, to the podcast. Now, we, of course, are talking about brand new Sunni publication, Wonder in South Asia, Histories, Aesthetics, and Ethics. And so I'm pleased to welcome to the podcast the editor of the volume, Dr. Tulsi Srinivas. And also, um, for the first time ever in this sort of situation, we have two of the contributors who are joining us as well, Drs. Hannah Kim and Quinn Clark. Welcome all to the podcast. Thank Thanks you. for having us, Thank Raj. You. So we're writing a book about wonder. And the first question is wondering about why wonder? And how, how does it arise that one writes a volume on wonder? It's clearly a rich and fascinating topic, but what is the backstory for this publication? Thank you for asking that. In fact, the introduction uh, is titled Wondering About Wonder, as you know. Um, and it, it arose very um, organically and out of my stupidity, actually. Um, I was doing field work in Bangalore, my hometown, in these temples in the North Indian, uh, north of the city, a suburb called Maleshram, which is known for its sort of Brahmanical uh, sort of um, attitudes and and it's a neighborhood of essentially upper caste people and it has several temples and um, through a sort of serendipity accident etc I decided to study quote unquote my own people and discovered uh, this was for my dissertation in the early nine mid nineties. And I discovered very quickly that uh, these, my own people, were um, very far from who I thought I was, and I had a great deal of trouble fitting in. But along the way, I noticed that these priests and um, and ritualists in general, um, neighborhood people who attended the temple, used the word adbhuta, the Sanskrit word adbhuta, um, to describe the rituals and the changes in rituals that they were seeing. I realized that this book was about ritual creativity. And more importantly, that um, 
in looking at my field notes some 10 years later, I realized that every time they used the word adbhuta, I had translated it as oddity, as strangeness, as something unusual. And in one place, I translated it as wonder. Adbhutavagi in Kannada, wonderful. And, um, and next to it, my father, who was a renowned social anthropologist and who was my field guide, had put his a notation of a smiley face, which is quite different from the global emoticon of the yellow smiley face because it had eyebrows. And the eyebrows denoted to me and a double check mark. And it denoted to me that he was, he had honed in on that translation bit. And so I looked back through all my notes and these were the days when I wrote on little note cards, right? No digital notes here. I looked back through thousands of note cards and I found a book that had been used several hundred times. And so I went back and I looked at the conditions in which the ritualists had used the word. And I realized that they were talking about wonder. And once I hit upon this, the book, which was, took 18 years to write, flowed much more smoothly because I realized here was a trope that actually attended to the problems in the field that I was facing, pulling things, threads together. And then I started obviously looking for other literature on wonder, and I found that no one in South Asia was attending to it. There was this whole history in European thought of wonder, and in science particularly, it, you know, post-enlightenment sort of 17th century Europe, talked a lot about wonder and the cabinets of curiosity. And I realized that wonder was linked to curiosity, was linked to creativity, and in my field work was linked to a compassionate sort of ethos of creativity. And so I became quite interested in this concept of wonder. And then I wrote this book called The Cow in the Elevator and Anthropology of Wonder. I realized that uh, what was happening in my field was, was the provocations to wonder was what was the sort of basis of ritual creativity. But then I got curious as to how many of my friends in South Asia were doing field work and had tripped across wonder, but had disregarded it because anthropology actually didn't have a vocabulary to deal with it. So they'd seen it through the, or they'd encountered it through the sort of side glance of their vision, the peripheral vision, um, which a lot of anthropologists have talked about in the field but had ignored it because there was no vocabulary or no structure to think about that. And so I actually, um, there were, fortunately for me, a lot of my friends put together book panels to think about my book. Uh, and a lot of people started talking, a lot of my friends started talking about wonder in, um, in various sort of encounters in the field. Hannah was one of those, uh, one of uh, our contributors, Hannah Kim, Professor Hannah Kim, she um, was one of those early panelists who talked about wonder in her work in the, amongst the, in the Swami Narayan movement in Gujarat. And then I tripped across younger scholars like Quinn, who was talking about money, which was a fascinating uh, thing in my field work as well, and talking about wonder in those spaces. And so I thought, wouldn't it be exciting to see how these scholars uh, think about wonder? and the different uh, fieldwork they've done, and to have a common conversation about uh, both how wonder has been ignored in South Asian scholarship, though it has a long history in South Asian theology, um, but how it has been ignored by anthropologists and, and uh, 
for scholars of South Asia more currently, uh, and how embedded the idea is, the idea of Adbhuta is, and how we can think about it productively for scholarship today. And that was a sort of seed of how um, we, we came to this common conversation around wonder. Um, yeah, that was it, really. So upon dispatching your invitation to certain scholars to contribute, was it already clear to them that wonder was um, a fruitful object or avenue of investigation or was it still peripheral? I mean, did they have to reframe their thinking or were they already thinking about how to use uh, Buddha or wonder? I think some were already thinking along those lines. Um, I just happened to trip over the translation. Um, it was no, no great thinking on my part. It was much more Babu Bhattar, my interlocutors, Dandu Shastri, Kashi Shastri, who sort of trained me to look. So I think a lot of people were actually thinking about it. Um, and then there were some scholars who came to it via my book or um, were circling around similar ideas, but hadn't yet sort of uh, structured it as wonderful thinking um, within quotes. Uh, but nonetheless, it proved a very productive conversation, both for me and for them. Um, in reading their essays, we shared essays, or at least I shared essays with everybody once it reached a certain stage. Um, but I, I kept it separate for a long time because I wanted people to find different parts to wonder. I thought that would prove productive for the audience with the reader versus all of us coming to one understanding of wonder. So I sent around a concept note and my book was published. So I figured people would pick it up or not pick it up. It didn't really matter. Um, and the trajectory was incredible. We got uh, William Ellison wrote this beautiful piece on Ganesha, and uh, which you must have read, Raj, on Ganesha as this horrifying, scary figure um, in um, in American fiction, uh, and the sort of <clears throat> shifts that these uh, that these Hindu images had, fictionalized na narratives, and gold. The brilliant Anne Gold wrote this beautiful um, uh, sort of biographical memoir of sort of 25, 40 years in the field, sort of thinking about how wonder played through her research in Rajasthan on pilgrimage and, and worship. So we, we had a variety. Um, um, Jasmine Ellison wrote this beautiful piece on Dhamal drumming in Gujarat. Um, Amanda Lucia wrote a brilliant piece on the Kumbh Mela and the sort of amount of excess and wonder trash. And of course, the brilliant Jacob Copeman wrote a beautiful, another beautiful piece on guru logics and, and media and, and guru's understanding of spectacle and wonderful spectacle <clears throat> as a wonder trap, as it were. So we got what was brilliant about to me was um, the histories, the aesthetics and ethics that came out of this book all led, all came from different spaces, approach wonder differently, which I think was so productive for any reader. Um, I didn't want to have a book where, you know, with many edited books, is one or two chapters are spectacular and everyone uses them to teach and then the rest of the book falls apart. But I think what is great about this book, <clears throat> this edited collection was um, the every single author in the collection, every single contributor uh, produced a sort of crystalline p 
piece that thought about wonder differently and approached it differently. And so I think the book hangs together um, brilliantly as a conversation about wonder among scholars. Um, and it hangs apart as individual chapters as well. And to me, that was um, that was one real gift. And the second thing, which was more intentional, was that when I was a young scholar uh, and I was trying to get published, which was very long ago, but nonetheless, the trauma has uh, has stayed with me. Um, it was very difficult for me. Um, and I determined very early on that I wanted to showcase one third of the book to be emergent scholars thinking, um, which I find edited collections usually hit the big names and and uh, leave out emergent scholars. I was very clear that I wanted across our generational sort of spread of scholarship to have a, 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 a dynamic conversation. And so one third of the book is devoted to emergent scholars thinking about wonder. Of course, the established scholars like Anne Gould, Amanda Hanna, um, uh, and then they're, uh, you know, all of us in conversation, uh, referencing each other's ideas. But certainly it's a noble enterprise to leave space for, for all voices, however, however quote-unquote, seasoned they may be. Um, and, you know, times have changed to the extent that um, I defended in 2015 and have opted to remain independent since because of the uh, job market, frankly. Um, and never had I imagined uh, to be a technically independent scholar publishing in the most premier venues of our field. Times have clearly changed. I mean, that was not even imaginable when I was a grad student, actually. Um, but it's wonderful that you're leaving space um, uh, and you're not being prejudicial towards the voices that are coming your way because they're, they're all valuable. The, the volume clearly features high caliber work in a wide variety of sort of... Um, there are a great many peepholes into the Indic world. I mean, you mentioned a number of them, but everything from um, uh, Amy Oloko writes about wonder in the cremation ground. Uh, Harshita Kamat writes about wonder um, on the Kuchipuri uh, stage. So there are great many seemingly disparate case studies that are rich, and yet they all partake in evincing the extent to which wonder is baked in to all things Indic. It's, it's baked in. It's, it's, it's in the air. And, and perhaps we'll speak towards the end of the podcast about the extent to which that is a function of what we think of as religion in general. But um, maybe mm -hmm. we can talk a little bit about the, the particular um, uh, the, the contributions on behalf of Hannah and Quinn, since we have them on, on the podcast. Uh, maybe Hannah, you'd like to go first. Tell us a bit about your contribution. Hey, well, I'd like to begin by saying that for over two decades, I've been hearing Dulcie talk about two men in her life. The two men turn out to be these two priests who figure dominantly and are at the core of the wonder-making in the cow in the elevator. But all along, there was a third man, and that man was Tulsi's father, M. N. Srinivas. For all of us trained in anthropology, um, especially uh, anthropology of South Asia, uh, Srinivas is our main figurehead. So I want to acknowledge the role of these three men uh, <laughs> as the inspiration for Tulsi's book, which I think we can see from this uh, Sunni volume, uh, Wonder in South Asia, is the inspiration for all of the contributors. So 
I like the question that you asked Raj of Tulsi, you know, how did this book emerge? How did the wondering about wonder emerge? So I fall into the category of, no, I didn't set about <laughs> to do any specific exploration of wonder, adbhuta, chamatkar, if you want to use the sense of the miraculous happenings. Uh, it's rather, I began to notice based on my own research um, field work with the BAPS Swaminar and Sanstha, and I'll just refer to them as BAPS. Uh, these narratives, narratives, kind of stories, prasangs, as they call them, emerging from my interlocutors. Um, nobody described them as, let me tell you a story about this amazing incident or this kind of, um, you know, this wonder moment. There would be words like uh, a miracle or, yes, something extraordinary, or I can't stop thinking about it, or let me tell you something that happened. But more often, it was in the context of fieldwork over, <laughs> I've got to admit it, if I fall into the category of the older end of the contributors to this volume, you know, over 25 years of research, when I think back, it's those stories that our um, friends, colleagues, and interlocutors in the field tell us that make the kind of the big impression. And each of these stories had what I felt was a component of the deeply affective or something that touched the, uh, made an impression on the affective that is the bodily affective dimension of being human. And because I'm working with the APS, then filtered through the devotional Pakti teachings of BAPS, these moments that made such kind of a bodily impression were interpreted in particular ways. So after reading The Cow in the Elevator, I began to pay uh, more attention to those stories that have made an impression on me. And I didn't go far. I didn't date 25 years worth. I looked back about five, seven years and found three, three uh, stories. They're not representative of anything, but individuals who within the last five to seven years, something they said in one instance over the course of maybe no more than 15 minutes. And in the other instance, maybe it was an hour. And in the third instance, there were three individuals I sort of profiled in my uh, particular contribution, chapter 10. <laughs> Um, the third individual, it was probably over the course of speaking two, three hours and meeting more than once. These stories really stood out. So the specifics of the stories, you know, maybe now is not the time to go into them, but it's really the, the way in which the narrator told these stories. They never once used the word wonder. Maybe the word miracle was used, but it's very context specific. It was miraculous when it is miraculous, for example, when after maybe 10 minutes of conversation, uh, somebody decides to leave off drinking and smoking, a lifetime habit, just like that. And there's some element of the miraculous in there. That's not the story particular to my three interlocutors, but was told by one of them. In each of these three instances, what they described was something they experience at a highly individual level. So we have this problem in anthropology where if something is so highly specific to one person, 
can it be generalized? Is it generalizable? Is it reasonable to even make an effort to generalize? And I mean, the answer in anthropology is yes, but it's how it's done that, of course, um, contributes to kind of the veracity, the translatability, the mobility, um, the theoretical kind of um, richness or possibility, potential of the story. And I found that in all three of these interlocutors of mine. But the challenge then was to take up what I think what Dulce Ben Dulce sets out in the cow in the elevator. Wonder is clearly a generative, such an incredibly generative concept. I think we can narrow down, and Dulce does this very well in the introduction to this edited volume. We can narrow it down to sort of a, a set of affective responses. We have the vocabulary in English, but it's generative in that no matter where we go, who we look at within subcontinent of India, South Asia, the Indic universe, whatever you want to call it, and beyond, people can react to, they can recall, they have personally experienced instances of what they might call wonder. And the challenge is how do we leverage this? Is there theoretical framing potential by dwelling on the wondrous? And this is the challenge that I thought I would take up. So thinking about what my interlocutors have shared, recognizing that they come from within the BAPS Swaminarayan universe, although one is not Swaminarayan, one was struggling with being Swaminarayan, one became Swaminarayan. And for those unfamiliar, you know, the vast majority, maybe 98.99 or 99.5% of people who are in the BAPS Swaminarayan Sansa are Gujarati, but one of my informants is not Gujarati at all. He's from North India. Um, thinking about their stories, how they narrated, the vocabulary they used, I tried to figure out in my contribution to this volume, how could that kind of guide us to perhaps a, a framework for thinking about doing fieldwork, understanding people and uh, their behaviors, understanding devotionally motivated behaviors, and ideally being able to focus on wonder in any geographic context, any fieldwork context, religiously inflected or not, and come up with some productive insights into the whys, the whys of human behavior. Fascinating. Thank you for sharing on your contribution. Perhaps now we'll hear from uh, Quinn about your contribution. Thanks, Raj. Again, thanks for having all of us. I think it's a really fun platform to be able to talk about the, the book in a more kind of um, freeform and conversational way. Again, thanks to Tulsi for being our fearless leader. As one of those junior researchers, it is not lost on me what a risk she takes in sort of, you know, um, enlisting some of us, but then also really mentoring. And, and I sent her a lot of angsty emails over the course of this project saying, oh my gosh, it's, it's, this piece is trash. You got to get rid of it. It's no good. And she says, calm down. It's just fine. I'm the editor. I'm in charge. I'll make sure it's going to be just fine. So um, a big thanks to her. Um, you know, it's funny, just like Hannah, um, 
I also picked up on your question that you posed to Tulsi about, were you already thinking about wonder when you joined the project? Uh, and I could tell you some tidy, fake story about how I was sitting alone working on my dissertation, just sort of like combing through the cow in the elevator, thinking deeply about wonder. The reality is I was finishing my dissertation. I was stressed out. I was working on a dissertation about Sufi shrines, Sufism in North India and money um, and thinking about the way that people, yes, actual money. That is to say, let's talk about real estate mafias. Let's talk about wakf boards. Let's talk about um, the way that people use accusations of Saudi oil dollars as a way of disparaging theological rivals and things like this. So this is where my head is. Tulsi reaches out to me invites me, generously invites me to be a part of the project, and I'm thrilled to be a part of this, write this piece. And Tulsi, I don't know if you remember this, but this is perhaps, this is the kind of behind the scenes stories you get from a podcast as opposed to the introduction, is I sent it to her and she says, great stuff, where's the wonder? <laughs> and, I, and I said, that's right, I was in such a flurry. I was so worried about getting something that was sort of um, presentable. I didn't take the time to really sit and deeply think about wonder. And so I went back to the cow in the elevator and I reread it. I reread the chapter that I had already been referring to of Tulsi's, which was, what do you know about money? Um, and I, um, and it took my project. I saw my own material, my own project in a whole new light. And, and I think that's kind of my sales pitch here as to why people should take the time to go. Um, if you find yourself thinking, well, I don't work on wonder. Pick it up anyways. It's a little bit like when my students come and they have a uh, like a CFP, like a call for papers for a um, a conference, and they'll come to me and say, "I'd like to do this conference, but you know, but I don't work on gender." I'll say, "Yes, you do. You don't know. You don't know that you you all you do work on gender. Go find the the how gender, for example, this is an example, fits into your project." That was my experience with Wonder. Um, that I already had a project. I already had things that I was working on. And basically the question posed to me was go find um, wonder that it's already there. You just have to go find it. And so I did. And so my piece was about, um, I basically thematically or rhetorically focus on one aspect of Kowali performances in North India in which people take cash and, and in a moment and, and sort of basically um, shower it over the the koali the koals the performers of koali it's a brief moment sometimes you see it sometimes you don't um and that's all it kind of is and then throughout the chapter i try to unpack the the ritual logic of it why do people shower um people with cash when they do and what's the idea and then specifically why cash and what is what does paper cash paper money mean in this miraculous sort of spectacle. I mean, it really is a spectacle in the sense of like colorful notes fl floating down everywhere. Then, well, what does it mean in this context? And what does it mean outside of that context? And then all of a sudden you start hearing stories about people sort of attributing theological decay, the eligibility of salvation, who who is entered into paradise and who's not. What the, the sort of who's a real Sufi and who's not in terms of what I was picking up on their relationship with money, the way they handle money. And so what I liked my sort of entrance into wonder was not necessarily 
um, big, scary Ganesh, um, sort of a wondrous object. But so, as as we see in another chapter, which is you know perfectly suited for this concept, for me it was more like an everyday quotidian wondrous quality to, to money. We think, oh, it's just everywhere. This is just how money works. You start to, to look deeply into it. And actually we attribute a great many things to the powers of money, the root of all evil, as they would call it in the sort of the um, uh, uh, the Christian tradition. I mean, that's that's a profound thing to say. To say that you can tell who a true Sufi is and isn't by the way they handle money. I mean, this is quite theologically rich. It says a lot about the market conditions in North India. It says a lot about the socioeconomic conditions in which Muslims live in North India. It says a lot about um, the history of Sufism and asceticism. And so that was the sort of um, richness that I was able to sort of see in my own. I mean, it was in, in a sense always writing, trying to tell my students, you know, writing is not just the process of transcribing fully formed thoughts in your head onto paper. It's generative. Um, you learn about yourself and you learn about your own material. And so that would be my kind of sales pitch to um, to people who want to pick up the book is to say, um, don't ask if your work is related to wonder, assume that it is and use this book as a way of finding the richness that can be unlocked or unearthed through that concept um, by seeing how others have done it. And as Tulsi has mentioned, it's um, people have the, the contributors have done it in a great many ways. Um, so um, I, I, again, I just think it's been a very fruitful process from um, from Ganesh and and certain temple contexts to uh, real estate mafias and accusations of the influence of Wahhabi oil dollars in North India. In my chapter, um, it kind of runs the topic thematically. Uh, and topically, but but sort of is all held together by that concept of wonder. Thank you for sharing on your contribution. Um, you know your your discussion of um, you know the mark of a Sufi is how uh, how they handle money. You know, uh, I was recently teaching most uh, the majority of my teaching these days is continuing studies. I, I love public education, adult education. I've been doing it since about twenty ten or so, um, and we were teaching on Lakshmi. The goddess Lakshmi and her her rep representation of, uh, you know, she's the goddess of money, but she's worshipped, and and certain students have qualms about that, and and, and uh, you know, I reframe it as abundance. She's abundance, and the idea about money being the root of all evil. I'm like, no, 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 greed is the root of all evil, <laughs> not the money. I mean, with good intentions, Precisely. imagine imagine what can be done with a billion dollars with and small tourism behind it. Um, so that's fascinating. Also, um, above and beyond a sales pitch per se about uh, wonder being so um, ubiquitous and perennial to South Asian religion, I think it really and truly is the case that wonder is, and perhaps this is a question that I'll pose, the extent to which it is innate to religion to all things religious, mm -hmm. to some, you know, is this not, does this book not wittingly or unwittingly create space more space for the experiential, uh, perhaps even uh, within religious studies without venturing into the realm of theology proper, but creating space for an experience of the wondrous. Uh, I taught a course at the University of Toronto's Continuing Studies School for about seven years, uh, and it was um, looking at ancient religious narratives and then looking at modern sci-fi um, fantasy and showing that religious ideas haven't gone anywhere. Uh, and one of the one of the the themes, one of the the, the, the modules of that course was wonder, you know, uh, whereas the those have been inspired by um, 
uh, Krishna's uh, Vishwarupa on the battlefield or the walking on water of Jesus of Nazareth. Um, is it not similar, is the question for the students, is it similar or dissimilar when we see um, Gandalf resurrected facing the Balrog, when we see Luke destroying the Death Star, why are people applauding? When we see Daenerys flying over high, mother of dragons, untouched by fire. Are, are these, you know, is it not such that there is a need for the wondrous? And is it, is it not such that the wondrous has always been a cornerstone of religiosity? And in this uh, but perhaps to many disenchanted world of ours, perhaps mm. enchantment is necessary. And perhaps it is very much at the heart of religious experience. I mean, these are, what do I know? These are just musings, but I would love to hear perhaps from any of you on the extent to which um, we think that this narrative or space for wonder might have utility to various projects within all things Indic or beyond within religious studies as a whole. Hmm. I think I think it's hard to say, Raj, that it's not present in uh, religious traditions, expressions of religiosity. But maybe I would be hesitant to make any sort of. That's all right. We'll allow Tulsi to stick with that and pontificate. <laughs> right. Yeah. Go ahead, Tulsi. Mm-hmm. Um. Well. Um. Lorraine Daston and Catherine Park have written this beautiful book on 17th century scientific pursuits in uh, in Europe. Argue that the human need is for wonder, and so humans ascribe wonder, uh, ascribed wonder historically, and continue to ascribe wonder. And as we know, Rudolf Otto, this is was my entry point that we have descriptions of what wonder does affectively to us, but we don't know really what it is. <clears throat> We know what it does in the world. But our need for it is seemingly unquenched and unquenchable. And so it doesn't surprise me that modern myths retrofit sort of what previously were called theological ideas um, mm-hmm. uh, in new vocabularies, new languages. Um, uh, and it doesn't surprise me that our right-wing sort of Christian and Hindu advocates also retrofit myths to sort of as political tools, because the wondrous is seductive, it is necessary. We need that lift out of ourselves, that curiosity. Um, So Mm -hmm. what you say strikes many notes, many resonances. Some like wonder itself beautiful and like wonder itself terrifying to me, because the, the sort of analysis of wonder says it is not, it is Vishwarupa, it is all, so it is beautiful, but it is horrifying at once. And so the outcomes of it necessarily are beautiful and horrifying. And the human need, as Dustin and Park tell us, is for both uh, to to have that lift of feeling. Um, So they see it as affective. I'm not sure that it's only affective. Um, But while I have the floor, let me turn. And part of what was wondrous to me was in practical terms, the way the group came together, sort of magically almost, and magically how we found <clears throat> a press interested in publishing this book. Uh, SUNY Press was delightful. It was strangely wondrous because I know how difficult it is to publish books like this. James Pelt sort of went, this is a great book. And I went, really? And so 
the wondrous seems to open many doors in um, people's heads as well as in sort of ways of behaving that I think are really interesting. And this is why it doesn't, it's not just theological in the book as well. The contributors come at it mm-hmm. in very different ways. The frame might be seemingly religious, say the Kumbh Mela, but actually the ways in, as Quinn talks about, are, are sort of monetary, they're material, they're um, ideological, they're, they're historical, they're aesthetics. Um, and so I think wonder is productive terrain to think about many different sort of ontological, epistemological problems mm-hmm. that we have um, as scholars in thinking about the yeah. way people live, be in their worlds and create worlds. And that's why it's called, you know, worlds within worlds, as it were. Um, so I expanded on Hannah's, um, Hannah's uh, well, hesitations. <laughs> to, but yes, to sort of assume that it's, yeah, that it's kind of um, distinctive to religious worlds. No, I like, I like how you bring back, um, you know, the work of scholarship that in fact shows that um, in a historical sense, whatever is in the, I don't say, or whatever is floating out there in the zeitgeist um, sort of gets sucked in to the human need for wonder and can get reframed, deployed, and used in particular ways. This is very obvious, for example, in Copeland and his uh, co-author's piece on wonder traps. <laughs> There's a conscious production of something to suck you in and contribute to the making of these wonder traps. You know, very different modes of production and relationship to wonder are going on in the BAPS Swaminarayan Sansta, in, I think it looks like in the context of the, um, the Kuali money showers that um, Quinn talks about and in many of other contributions. So the Copeman and co-author contribution is fascinating because it's suggest a very different relation, very explicit relationship, the manufacture of wonder. Um, of course, from the perspective of Copeman and his co-author, it's to ensnare. <laughs> and, um, I'm not sure necessarily um, that that is exclusively the provenance of religious uh, leaders, <laughs> as we can see in our current political climate. If, if I may just add, Raj, Dulce and Quinn, I'm really curious. Dulce asks us at the very beginning or within the introduction to this volume, is there something, is there something particular to the space of South Asia, the geography or the, you know, the location that generates more wonder instances, moments, or contexts? And uh, I don't I don't know those, if you had an answer or you had something in mind after working with all of the contributors. Um, yeah, I'm just curious because I even there I would, maybe I want to say yes, but I'm not sure. Well, while we allow, um, go ahead. Queen sometimes, yeah. Well, I was no, just thinking uh, about this. Someone. Yeah, I don't have a terribly, um, I don't have an answer, but I have another a question. And and it's thinking about what you put about the, is there something about South Asia? And then Raj, you asked, is there something about religion? Um, 
And I find myself kind of putting those two together. Um, you, you know, used the term disenchantment and you talked about, um, we think of this sort of, when we think of wonder, we think of things that are wondrous, we describe in terms of exceptional or mysterious or somehow big, somehow noticeable, somehow sort of outside of the ordinary and they sort of fascinate us. In a sense, this is a work of, and, and so I was thinking about, you were saying, you know, has wonder in the media scene and media <laughs> landscape that we're in kind of gone away and we're no longer feel, we feel disenchanted. We feel not wowed by things like we used to be. Well, this is a work of research, right? So there's another sense in which we can be sort of brutally analytic and just ask ourselves, is that true? Is that true? that there's less wonder in the world. And when you talk about Star Wars and the way that people react to, is it true that because people have cell phones more often and can look through this screen that they're somehow numbed to the wondrous nature of our, of our world? Not really, no. We see people doing virtual hudge. We do people doing virtual puja through WhatsApp. It just seems from a, almost a ruthlessly empirical sense, no. That just doesn't seem to be the case. Um, and it's our sort of responsibility to sort of attend to the way that our world has always been kind of wondrous and kind of uh, analyze it. That's how I think about religious studies as well, Raj, um, in the sense that we can kind of live in some sort of illusion that religion has sort of, quote unquote, gone away. But that's just not true. Go look at any Supreme Court case in the U.S. and there's religion everywhere. Um, go turn on sort of your local sort of political news. It, everything is we're talking about religion. Um, that's where I go back to the question about, is there something about South Asia? And I don't have the answer, but more <laughs> my mind goes is that the way that, you know, when I teach students about what it means to be secular in the West versus what it means to be secular in, let's say, India, um, and how there's just fundamentally, this means something very different because there's no appetite to denude the public sphere of religion there's an appetite to manage religious communities, institutions, rituals in the public sphere in particular ways. But, but you know, the, there's no fantasy about going to a religion's free space um, or area in certain kinds of um, pockets um, of South Asia. And so when I guess, I guess what I'm thinking about is this idea, Rod, again, sorry if this is unclear, but I'm kind of forming this in real time. Again, the benefits of this platform you've given us um, that um, if, if in a sense the world has the religion hasn't gone anywhere, we've just uh, we're we're living in a little bit of a delusion. Think we're not seeing it when we think, oh, we've become disenchanted and therefore it's gone away. I wonder about the same thing about wonder in South Asia, and if it's a matter of perspective that we need. To, it's already always already kind of wondrous, and we have to come and kind of see it. And again, not to to hammer this again, I think this is the benefit of a a project like this is to prompt people to say, assume that when wonder is already in your lives in small, perhaps quotidian ways, where is it? Not, is it there, but where is it? Um, as our tool C has kind of mentioned, as a, almost, almost a fundamental part of a, a human kind of need or desire. Well, to the extent, uh, the extent to which um, we view or construe wonder as a, as a fundamental human need and or drive, then how could wonder not be part of any all things humanities uh, to, to a certain extent? And and thank you for taking the opportunity to think aloud because thinking aloud is allowed. And on podcasts, generalizations are not occupational hazards; they're they're welcome. <laughs> great. <laughs> so that's great. Um, um, 
you know, a couple of things come to mind. Uh, I suppose we'll, we'll wrap up soon to be mindful of everyone's time. But, you know, it, 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 to my mind, um, uh, the, 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 the demarcations and boundaries between what we think of as the secular or the sacred, the wondrous or the, or the empirical, uh, those, those boundaries, to my mind, tend to be somewhat more elided in the South Asian context where many an individual is fully capable of compartmentalizing and using their problem-solving brain to, 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 to feel tech calls, you know, two hours before being moved by a puja or a religious experience in sadhana. And, and this, so without grossly overgeneralizing, uh, many would argue that the wondrous is always there. It's the extent to which the modern mind can perceive it and engage it. Um, two things come to mind. I think uh, the late Alf Hiltabite, the great scholar of the Mahabharata, who's no longer with us, I think his last work was actually on, I think it was called World of Wonders, just a year or a year and a half ago, uh, the work of uh, Adbhuta Rasa in the Mahabharata and the Harivamsha. And so that's a work that I hope to dive into for my own research when I'm not reading for the podcast. <laughs> and also, as silly as it may sound, I just uh, I spent some time over the holidays just catching up on some Netflix because, you know, never enough time for that uh, between podcasting and teaching and counseling and whatnot. So I was watching, uh, I finished watching The Crowd. And there's a moment where, uh, and it's obviously it's, it's fictionalized. We don't know. Uh, I'm referring to the, the, the fictionalized world of The Crowd. Who knows about reality? But Queen Elizabeth II is having an engagement with the very practical Tony Blair, her prime minister, and he's he's all about let's scale back. Like, what is this ostentatious, archaic, expensive, you know, pomp and circumstance doing for anybody? And 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 um, Elizabeth, to her credit, takes under under serious advisement, speaks with her family members, uh, and she comes up with this idea of people don't want their regular mundane lives when they brush up with royalty. They want to be lifted up lifted beyond the mundane they want the magic they want the mystery this is our duty to provide this to them so here we are i said too much um uh, thank you all for appearing on the podcast today is there anything else you, you, any of you wanted to to say or touch on before we close for today hey i do have a thought raj i do have a thought is prompted by what quinn um said you know wonder what you've said as well that if Wonder is de facto, just speaking for the South Asian context there. And if we were to look more closely, um, or for those of us in academia, reconsider our field notes, prompted by a reading of this book or chapters, or just you know listening to the podcast, um, what could it achieve at the kind of reframing of ritual, practice, behavior, and how we talk and think about it. So just, I know I'm not, not let, me, let, me, let me restart in the sense that I'm just wondering for all of us who spend time in India, whether we are researchers or not, trying to puzzle through behaviors, our observations, or what other people tell us. Um, does a focus on the affective dimension, in this case, the selected one is wonder, does it give us an entry point into thinking about how to think about things in South Asia that is perhaps less hierarchical, 
or as uh, one of the contributors, Mary Hancock in the volume, um, when she looks at the role of Protestant Christian missions and their relationship to India, that does looking at the dimension of wonder, to use her word, give us a way to recode our ways of seeing things in the Indic universe. If it does, then that allows what many of us are anyway involved in, whether we call it a decentering, deprovincializing. I think the dimension of the affective wonder in particular is one that we have focused on, but there are others, um, perhaps gives us an entry point for exploration of behavior in the Indian, Indic, Hindu, South Asian, non-Hindu, many other ways in which can look at the, um, you know, the, the, the area of India that doesn't rely on sort of hierarchies of whether it's methods of analysis, positionalities, or just long-standing assumptions. Thank you for the thought-provoking um, insights, uh, observations. Anyone else before we close? I can leave it to Tulsi. I'll give Tulsi the last word. And, and, and I'll just say kind of briefly that I just, again, I appreciate you bringing this on. Um, to me, it was a very generative project. And, and I, I'll, this is perhaps a strange thing to say, but I tend to talk about disenchantment. Generally speaking, I can kind of go into projects with a little bit of like a cynical mentality. You know, I'm not the most lovey-dovey guy. I'm kind of allergic to romanticism. I'd start this project on Sufi shrines and I make a choice to not focus on Hindu, Muslim, Hai, and poetry, but instead to focus on walk boards and real estate mafias. That's the kind of person I am, right? This is just kind of how I operate. And so when I'm brought into a project about wonder, I think, what am I going to? What am I going to contribute to something like this? I'm such a cynic. It was so rich and it was so productive for me. And again, that's kind of my, for your listeners who are thinking, if they may be thinking to themselves, like, you know, perhaps there's a normative value of wonder. There's something good about being, of being in a state of wonder. But again, even as an analytic, it's just going to open up all of these different doors. Uh, and that is exactly how I felt going in, starting this thinking, what am I going to, what is the relationship between wonder and and really heartfelt anguish over sacred sites being stolen by real estate mafias? Turns out there is a very clear connection. And, and it's sort of our responsibility as sort of researchers to find that. And wonder helped me do that. And so um, I just wanted to, that's kind of my final words. And I'll pick up and thank Hannah Kim and um, Quinn Clark for their incredible contributions to the volume. And with them, <clears throat> Harshita Murtanti Kamath has written this beautiful piece on gender and Vesham, male Vesham in Kuchipudi dance in South India. Uh, we have Amy Oloko, as you talked about, the, um, the um, uh, graveyard uh, rituals in uh, cemeteries in South India. Um, we have Aniruddhan Vasudevan who's written a beautiful piece on trans women, Tirunangais in Chennai. We have um, Mary Hancock uh, has written a history of Christian missionary, as Hannah referred to Christian missionary activity in South India. Um, um, Anne Gold, as I said, has written this beautiful biographical piece. Um, Amanda Lucia on the Kumbh Mela. 
We have Jacob Copeman and uh, uh, Kunal Dugal on uh, wonder traps and illusions and ensnarement of devotees and uh, gurus multimedia. We have um, the the list is endless. William Ellison on horrors and science fiction and sort of uh, Conan the Barbarian and their roots in Indic uh, sort of imaginaries. Um, we have. Uh, the list is is endless and 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 to me so surprisingly Jasmine Ellison, as I said, talking about Bhamal drumming performances that come out of um, Africa and into Gujarat. We have um, finally we um, we have my own small sort of analysis of these rich fields of wonder. And so when you ask the question, is there something emically happening in South Asia? That is that sort of bakes in, as you put it, uh, wonder into the South Asian sort of theology or imagination. Uh, I come back to David Shulman's sort of Indian imagination, um, his beautiful and thoughtful book on the Indian imagination. And I think what to me was fascinating about reading all these chapters was that it proves to me that exactly what Finn said, that wonder is such a useful analytic in thinking about different sites in South Asia. And my suspicion is, and uh, and this is just purely a suspicion, but in intelligent speculation perhaps, um, is that um, while wonder has been explored in a sort of post-enlightenment careful curation in, um, in, uh, in Europe, it has yet to be explored in India and other sites around the world. And I think we will find, if we do the work, that it is actually baked in to many different geographic sites, theological and ideological universes, as Quinn and Hannah talk about. And this is our small contribution to starting that discourse or, or widening it uh, to beyond Europe, to sort of, in a decolonial move, to think about uh, European exceptionalism is not being not being so wonderful. Um, and I think that if one thinks about wonder as an analytic, one can come to unexpected places uh, in one's analysis. And I and that to me was why it is productive and why I think the book um, is has done well and is going to do well as well. So thank you for having us, Raj. Um, it was so kind of you to pick up this book. And uh, and many thanks for having us for this conversation. My pleasure. Thank you all for appearing today. Thank you, Raj. For those listening, we've been talking about Wonder in South Asia, a brand new uh, SUNY publication. Um, until next time, keep well, keep safe, keep listening, keep reading, and keep contemplating the power of wonder within religious studies and beyond. Take care.